Thank you, Pastor Denise. Um, as you know, uh, if you've been part of our church for any period of time, um, what we're about to do uh, won't be, uh, it won't come out of left field because you know that we have at various points paused to call our church to a time of prayer, um, lament uh, in, in response to things that happen in our world. But you also know that we try not to be reactive. Um, these things are way too heavy, way too serious to just regurgitate talking points that the media tries to give us alone. Um, we want to be a Jesus people, and so we want to really think deeply, pray, and consider what he might be calling us to in response. And so I want to make you aware that our Hope Justice team, in, in seeking to care for our church and pastor us during this time, um, they're calling us to a time of prayer this coming Wednesday from 7 to 8 p.m. over Zoom as we join in prayer praying for the ongoing uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict that is just escalating at this time. And so we really hope that you would avail yourself of that. Um, I wanted to say a few words and then just have a time of prayer. And what I hope that these words would provide is some clarity. Um, if you're struggling, if you're confused, if it's been difficult to process this and to be present for friends and neighbors and just to make sense of things, um, I hope that these words bring some clarity as well as, as we end this time in, in prayer. The first thing that I think is really important as we wrestle with what's taking place before us is that the Palestinian people and Hamas are not one and the same. They are completely distinct. And so when we say that Hamas employed evil means when they killed innocent civilians, that is not the same thing as saying Palestinians are evil. And so here's what's important. You can be pro-Palestinian people while resisting the agenda of Hamas. These two things shouldn't be in conflict. Um, if you don't know, Hamas is a terrorist organization. It's in their charter. They exist to eliminate the people of Israel um, off the face of the earth. That's their agenda. But I think this is also important to, not, to note as we're processing and we're responding, is that the state of Israel and the Jewish people are not one and the same. And so you could be for the Jewish people while also not condoning the violence of the state of Israel. Um, and that does not make you anti-Semitic to believe and to state that the violence that's happening on that side of things is okay. Um, and so if you feel that Israel's response to the attacks or previous actions in the past have been wrong, to state that doesn't make you anti-Semitic. Um, the issue is, if you're aware, if you're paying attention, there's no shortage of arguments that try to elevate one group over the other, in essence, to try to justify one group having the moral high ground in executing violence against the other. And that's what our world sadly keeps trying to argue. Um, even as I say that, I want to recognize that there's so much complexity to this issue. There is an absolutely horrible history that's attached um, that we're seeing unfold right now. Um, and so I don't want to cheapen that by just giving quick bullet points. Um, this is messy. This is complicated. But at the same token, as 
the people of Jesus were pulled into these moments and what is our response? How should we process? How can we be present for neighbors? In a city like ours, we don't have the option to not engage because we have Jewish neighbors, we have Palestinian neighbors. And here's where I hope we could land our hearts. That Jesus is unequivocally for the Jewish people and he's unequivocally for the Palestinian people. And Jesus actually requires both sides to repent. Our world, again, keeps arguing which side has sinned more and therefore deserves to be the aggressor, but where has that math gotten us? Jesus condemns acts of violence, period, hard stop. Jesus condemns the taking of innocent lives, period, hard stop. Does not matter what their ethnicity is. The scriptures tell us Jesus is the prince of peace and that he desires to bring peace to this region of the world and any region of the world that is experiencing this kind of conflict. And we know, history tells us, that if peace could be achieved through armed conflict, then we would have no conflict in the world. Um, we need a peace that cannot be orchestrated by human means alone. And that's why we pray. That's why we respond in love. That's why we cry out to God in lament and yearn for justice. And so as the people of Jesus, we stand with peacemakers. We stand up for the vulnerable. We speak the truth to power. We condemn violence and we call for repentance and pray for the kingdom of God to come in this region of the world. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we, we seek you with heavy hearts. As we know right now, there are, there are lives being lost and your heart breaks over the injustice and the shedding of innocent blood. Lord, we weep with you over this conflict and we ask for your intervention, for your peace to break through. Lord, we ask for wisdom. Lord, for the leaders that have to navigate this, we pray that you would intervene when their hearts would go astray, when their hearts might be filled with vengeance rather than justice, would you intervene, Jesus? And Lord, we ask for the kingdom of God to come to this region of the world. Lord, we also pray for our city, Lord, that's home to such large Jewish and Palestinian communities and the tensions are high. And we ask God that you would bring your peace to our city. We pray for safety, Lord, for all. God, we lift up the police department and the law enforcement agencies that uh, have vowed to protect, to serve, Lord, and to keep us safe. And we ask that you would keep them safe, Lord, as they seek to keep our city safe and protect lives. So Lord, we ask for your intervention we ask for your hand to be extended. And Lord, we ask that we would be a grace-filled, non-anxious presence to our neighbors in the midst of all of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Thank you um, for letting me share and lead us in this time. And again, we encourage you and hope that you'll join us this coming Wednesday. Um, we're continuing our sermon series. Uh, we're gonna pick up uh, not exactly where we left off, because we're going to read some verses that we read last week, but we're going to spend 
our time today in verse 5, which we touched on last week, but in particular, verse 6, 7, and 8. That's where we're going to spend our time. But let's read for context Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And I want to encourage you this week and for the weeks to come, I can't stress enough how spiritually vital it will be to you to memorize as much as you can of Romans 8. Romans 8 does one of the most amazing services for us in that it summarizes what we've learned thus far in Romans, but it also synthesizes so many other parts of the Bible and gives us language and helps us to understand what this miraculous thing is, uh, what it looks like and how it happens, this thing called walking in the spirit and living for Jesus. And so um, toward that end, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 8. It says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity, the gift that it is to gather together as your people under your authority. And we pray you'd speak to us from your word. Give us hearts that hear and listen to what you would say to us. And we thank you. Holy Spirit, that you are here right now and that you want to glorify Jesus and you want to reveal him to each and every one of us and we pray that you would do so. And we thank you, Father, that we could encounter you in the love and grace that is always directed at us from your heart. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. If we look at verse 5, um, verse 5 says something quite powerful. It says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Can you say that phrase with me? Set their minds. Thank you, three people. Let's try that again. Can you say that phrase with me? Set their minds. We talked about last week that... This, the English translation of the original language, it doesn't do it full justice. It's an accurate translation, but there's a depth of meaning that could be missed if we don't dive into it. Because if you look at that, it's very easy to look at verse 5 and say, okay, so this is how it works. Whatever I set my mind on, that's how I'll live. So... Basically, Jesus and this, this walk with Jesus is just, it's another version of, like, self-help. 
It's another version of behavior modification. It's, oh, as a man thinketh, that's how his life goes. That's what this is saying. And I want to be careful, and, and I don't disagree with the fact that whatever you and I meditate on and think on and, and ponder, it does shape your life profoundly. It has ramifications. And so you and I can't just... Uh, think whatever we want or not discern our thoughts or not have like have a safeguard um, a, a filter that we apply what you let like go deep into your mind and settle in your soul will shape your life no question about it but that's not what actually the what this verse is trying to tell us what it what it's really trying to tell us that that phrase set your mind it means what you and I obsess over, what you and I love. And so what we're being told is that essentially, if you and I love the things of the flesh, then we will live according to the flesh. If you and I love the things of the spirit, then we will walk according to the spirit. What it's trying to get us to wrestle with is that what we love shapes how we live. Your life and my life is the sum total of what we love. If you add up all your, your calendar entries, if you add up all the things you spent money on, if you add up all the places you've been to this last week, at the other side of that equation, you would have a sense of, oh, this is, these are the things I love. This, the, the, what you love shows up in your life. If you want to know what a person loves, examine their life. Examine their choices. Examine what they spend their money on. Examine where they, where they direct and invest their time. And you will get a very clear sense of what they love. Often we say we love things that our life doesn't attest to. We say we love relationships, and yet if we're honest, how many of us dodge them and don't invest in them to the degree? We say we love, you name it, but if you add up and look at our life and say, I don't see the evidence of that. But what this is telling us is that whatever, we, whatever our hearts are set on, whatever our hearts are obsessing, that will shape our life more than anything. I know for some of us, we may not necessarily feel comfortable. We might need some more persuading because you think, you know what? I'm not just this person that's living by the, like, the, the swings of my heart, and I love this, and therefore I do that. And, and no, I'm a rational person. How many would consider yourself to be a rational person, that you're not driven by feelings? Some of you are scared to raise your hand. You're like, I know you. You trick us, Chris. You, and so, so you're like, no, I'm not driven by that. I'm not a fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants kind of person. I'm, I'm deliberate. I'm intentional. You could be all of that. You could be deliberate. You could be intentional. You could be rational. But at the end of the day, we don't keep doing the things that we do just because we're rational. We keep doing the things that we do because we love it. Why is this important? Because we read in Romans, uh, just the, the verse, uh, verse 3, it says that, what God has done in Christ is because the law was weakened by the flesh. So Jesus had to do what he did, and the spirit had to be given to us because the law of God 
was weakened by the flesh. In other words, we knew what God's law was calling us to do, but that wasn't enough. Knowing the right thing to do is not enough to get us to do the right thing. How many of us, we know the right thing to do in so many categories of life, and yet we don't do it? How many know, how many would say, you believe being punctual is the right thing to do? You know where I'm going with this. Well, you need to have a real thorough conversation with your body because your physical body keeps arriving places late. <laughs> Knowing it doesn't change. You, you and I could know what God wants us to do and not do it. And you know why that happens? It's because what we know to do doesn't overcome what we love to do. You and I love our way to obedience, and we love our way to disobedience. If you obeyed God this past week, it's because you loved obeying him more than you loved disobeying him in that area of your life. You loved him, therefore your life reflected that love. But any area, conversely, that you struggled this week, the, the difficult news to admit is that you did that thing, you keep doing those things, not because circumstances were not favorable. You, you and I can't blame this or that. We have to look at our hearts and say, I keep doing this because I love it. Here's something to add to that. I think we really need to like process this, especially in the world that we live in. If what scripture is telling us is that whatever you set your mind on, whatever you obsess over, love, that determines how you live. And so if you set your mind, obsess over the things of the flesh, you're going to live according to it. If you obsess over the things of the spirit, you're going to live according to the spirit. So what you and I love is actually very important. You taking an inventory of what you love is probably one of the greatest inventories you can take. Even more than what you say you love, what you actually love is determining and shaping how you and I live more than anything. But here's something quite heavy and serious to process. Verse 6 tells us, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. What verse 6 is telling us is that love is not neutral. That you and I have the capacity to love things that destroy us. And you and I, by the grace of Jesus, have the capacity to love the things of the spirit and that give us life. One of those capacities we, did, we could do on our own, which is on our own, left to ourselves, we will love things that destroy us. We're not taught that. We don't need to be aided. We have that capacity on our own because of sin. 
The capacity to love the things that God loves is a capacity we don't have within ourselves. We need his grace to transform our hearts, to help us to love what he loves so that we could live how he wants us to live. Why is that important? Because we live in a culture that tells us that what we love is neutral. Our culture will try to tell us that if you could put the label love on something, then that's it. No one can argue against it. So you could love your country in a way that's disproportionate or kind of puts you at odds against other people. But nobody could say it because if you said it's love of country, okay, no argument. Nobody could check that. You could have a lust in your heart, a selfish desire. But if you say it's love, our culture says it's okay. But here's what scripture is telling us, that you and I, we need to be very clear that love is not neutral, and therefore, just because you love something doesn't mean it's not killing you. Just because you love something, and I love something, doesn't mean that it takes away its sting of death in our life. If you and I love the things of the flesh, the things of the flesh will kill us. Point blank. If you and I love the things of the spirit, that kind of love will give us life. So I ask again, what do you love? What does your life tell you that you presently love? If you love what's of the flesh, then you are loving things that will kill you. If you love what's of the spirit, you are loving things that will give you life. As I process this, I realize like, it was really unflattering <laughs> to come to terms with the fact that I love certain things that absolutely dishonor God. Let me, let me give you, when I look at some things that keep repeating in my life, so I, I'll be real transparent, arguments that I keep having at home with my kids or my wife or or tensions I keep feeling with certain leaders that I know in the city or certain conversations that keep coming up and I, and I just like, this keeps happening. It was very unflattering to myself and humbling to say, this keeps happening because I love it. I don't wanna admit that, like you actually love to argue about this. You love to make your point. You love to get the edge on that. Not a fun time. Because prior to coming to that place of honesty, it was like, oh, I know why I keep doing this. It's because of that and this. And, and it, that happened. That's why I did this. And so it, in, in, isn't it funny in our own narratives, aren't we always the champion, you know? Aren't we always the, the one that's acted upon and like we're... We're never, you know, pernicious. You know, we're, we're, we never have evil intent. Um, I mean, if in your narratives, you're like the villain, you know, talk to me. I want to learn how to do that. You know, in my narratives, it's like, no, I'm, I'm always the good guy. 
it's, it's really tough work to admit that some of the things that we keep doing that dishonor God, that lead to death, we do it because we love it. I've been reading this book called Dopamine Nation. Really tough book because um, it's so scary, sobering what it says. Um, it's written by a researcher, and oh my gosh, it's really, really alarming just how much we are addicted to dopamine. Um, if you don't know, dopamine is this chemical that your brain produces, um, but it produces in response to pain and pleasure. And so it's a very tricky thing. Um, and, and we love it. We crave for it. We actually need it. Um, but when you're over-addicted to it, it creates really, like, scary consequences. Um, and so I, I mean this in love. All of us in this room are addicted to dopamine. Like, if, if you're like, not me, Chris, show me your phone. Show, show, show me how much time you spend on your phone. Uh, like, you're, you know, like, this is a dopamine dispensary right here. Like, you are walking around with a drug dealer, and every single second, it's just like, come on, let me give you a hit. You know, like, literally, like, this one's for free. Like, that is, you're walking around with a dopamine dispensary, and, and it's all the lights, all the, like, the sounds. It, these folks have studied it out, and they know, they, they know what buttons they're pushing, and they just want more of you. This, this author, they, she quoted, and, I, and I, I'm listening to listening to the book through audio, and so that's the unfortunate thing is I couldn't actually go back and find, find it, the exact location. Um, but she referenced this writer, who I believe was a theologian, and he said this phrase that I haven't been able to stop thinking about. He said, the true prophets that reveal our most clearest essence as people, prophets that tell us who we really are, are addicts. That if you want a window into the truest essence of a human being, look at an addict. Uh, that, some of you is like, that's unflattering. I don't want to no, know. I, I am not an addict. But you know what addicts tell us about all of us? They tell us that you and I have a deep capacity to love things that destroy. Even if they destroy others. And even if it's killing us while it's numbing us, we will love it. And what Romans is telling us is that you and I, often, we love things that kill us. And because of what Jesus has done, we now have the capacity to love things that bring us life. Jesus makes that choice possible. Apart from Jesus, you and I, the only path we will find ourselves on is the path of loving things that destroy. We won't have the capacity, the desire to love what brings life. But now Jesus has made this possible. But as good news, as hopeful as that is, we still need to wrestle with some really troubling, like final set, settling things that are said about this capacity, this propensity to love things that destroy. Because 
Look, look at the truth about us that we're told in, Rome, in Romans 8, 7. It says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The truth about the flesh, sinful nature, loving the things that it wants us to love is that it will put us in a state of hostility and unsubmissiveness to God. Again, this is not neutral. Right? It, 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 to love the things of the flesh, to love the things that are resistant to God's ways, it puts us on a path that not only eventually leads to death in the present, it puts us in a space of this ongoing state of hostility toward God. And look at what it says. It says, the sinful nature, the flesh, it cannot please God. It will always want to resist and not submit to God. So what this tells us is that this capacity to love things that destroy, that resist God's ways, is very deep inside of us. And this capacity to do so, this is the bad news, it will not end. There is no future date where your flesh and mine will say, you know what, I've given you a hard time all these years, made your Christian life difficult, I'm done vacationing, going to Bermuda. Go ahead, now you, you can just obey, you're never gonna hear from me again. It, that day doesn't come. You and I can't fast our way to that moment. There's nothing you could do that changes the finality of it, that inside of us, you and I are carrying a defiance. An unequivocal, like, it's never going to change. We carry within us this capacity to love things that destroy, and we, inside of us is this nature that says, I will do that to the very end. And it puts us in a position where we can't please God. So again, if you and I think that it's as simple as, oh, so then I just have to think on what God wants me to do, and then I'll do it. It's not that simple because inside of you and I, there is this nature that says, I will never stop resisting God. Never. What that means for us is that we need a savior. We can't do this on our own. We need resources that we don't have we need divine rescue. And that's what the gospel declares to us. The good news of Jesus is that he has come to rescue people like you and I who have the capacity to love things that destroy us, to love them to the very end, to not want to submit to God. Those very people Jesus has come to rescue. How does he do it? Essentially what Jesus does, he loves us into new life. His love overwhelms us into new life. And as he loves us, it changes what we love and how we love. 
So if, if you're like, man, this is depressing, this is sad, this is, oh, this is discouraging, where's the hope? Here's the hope. The hope is not go forth and try harder. That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't saying the good news is that you can do this and figure this out on your own. The good news is that even though you can't figure this out on your own, you and I meet a God who overwhelms us in his love. And his overwhelming love changes what we love. And when what we love is changed, how we live can be changed. This past week was, uh, has been a very emotional week um, for me, not just with everything going on in the world, but also on a personal level. Um, our three-year-old, Brielle, who's the absolute joy of our life. Um, uh, some of you, uh, if you primarily come to this service, like you hear about my family, but they're like, they're like a legend, you know? Like we know they exist. I've never seen them. They come to the first service. And so, so Brielle is our fourth child, and she was born with Down syndrome. And uh, it, though she's three, um, because, not to get into all the weeds, but when, when kids are born with special needs, um, the, in our city, there's services that are provided. Uh, it's called early intervention. And um, whether it's physical therapy, um, speech therapy, um, cognitive, special education. And so for the first couple years, we've had like three or four different therapists come to our house multiple times a week just to try to get her to um, kind of experience a shorter developmental lag. Um, and so she's three, but she, it's like almost like you're around a one and a half year old um, in, different, in different ways. And so when those services end, when they stop coming to your home, they continue only in a school setting. And so we have had to painfully wrestle with the idea of sending our three-year-old to school Oh, I've hated it. Um, like that, none of our kids have gone to school that early. But again, we're not just sending a three-year-old. We're sending our little girl, who's really like one and a half, to school. So she was supposed to start in September. Um, the immunization stuff uh, got mixed up, the schedule with the doctor. So then she was going to start later. Then she got sick. And so that's why she started this week, first week. And bring her to school, and we walk her there. Me and my wife are just a mess. It's Tuesday, um, so I keep it together. And then, uh, and then when we hand her over, um, she grabs the hands of this person who she doesn't know, and she looks at them, and then she just starts walking. <laughs> she didn't look back. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? And it was, it was so gut-wrenching. It was just like, oh, this... Like, I'm not that trusting as a person. Like, literally, she does not know this person. I was just like, oh, my God, this is the most amazing thing, like, to be that trusting. Um, so the last couple of days of the week, I was doing the, 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 the drop-off and the pickup by myself. So I didn't have my wife there. And, uh, oh, man, I was a mess. And so I'd, I'd take her, watch one of the, the aides or the teachers grab her and bring her in. She wouldn't look back. Um, <laughs> and then I'd have to, like, virtually run to the car because I'd just get overwhelmed. And so, like, the teachers would try to talk to me. Like, okay, bye. I'll see you. You know, like, I, I, just, I was just overcome with tears. Um, but one day during the pickup, I saw something that was amazing. This little boy comes out. You have to imagine, this school 
is filled with children that either have autism or Down syndrome or various other developmental challenges. And this little boy comes out, and I don't know what happened, but he was just done. And he just dropped to the floor. And he's not moving. And if you've ever had to deal with kids in that situation, you know that is like a hostage negotiation moment. You know, what's going to happen here? I don't know. Like, who's, it's, a, it's not a fun thing, you know, when, and the kid's mother came, and the kid's mother didn't say, get up. You shouldn't do this. What are you doing? We got to go. Kid's mother didn't try to, try to pick him up and move him, get him going. She wasn't even bothered by anybody around. I tell you, as a parent, sometimes that's the most triggering, anxious thing. It's just like, are people going to think I'm a terrible parent? Let me just move quickly. That didn't matter to her. All she did was she hugged him. And she stayed there in the hug until he popped up. And then he grabbed her hand. And then he started walking with her. And as I saw this, I was like, that is one of the most beautiful images of the gospel that I've ever seen. That what God does for us, he comes to us in this state of us loving things that destroy us. Loving things that destroy and thus lead us to live lives that are contrary to what he now has made possible, where we can love what he loves and live the way he wants us to live according to the spirit. And in that hopeless space where you and I could try as much as we can and we can't muster up the goodwill and the energy to consistently do this on our own, in that immobile state where we don't have the resources to take any steps in this path called walking in the spirit, what does the living God do? He doesn't come in shame. He doesn't come in judgment. He comes and overwhelms us with love. I'll love you back to life. I'll love you to the point where what you love will change. And when your heart and my heart experiences change with respect to what we love, then our life will naturally follow. So here's the good news for us. Whatever you're struggling with, that you don't see the change that you yearn for and you keep giving in and the flesh keeps winning and dominating in that area, the exit out of that is not you trying harder. The exit out of that is you receiving more of God's love. Letting him love you especially when you don't feel like you deserve it. Letting him overwhelm you with his love to the point where it changes what you love. And now you can take the steps that he calls you to take as the spirit empowers. Walking in the spirit happens as we let Jesus change what we love, which then changes what we think on which changes how we live. So as we close, as the worship team comes forward, I invite us again to ask ourselves, what do we love? Because what we love is shaping how we live. And our love is not neutral. You and I right now could find ourselves loving things that truly destroy us and resist God's 
best plan for us. And the hope out of this endless cycle of despair is letting God's overwhelming love transform what we love. Could I invite us to stand? And as we respond in these next few moments, I want to invite you to consider to consider the following. If you feel comfortable, could I invite you just to close your eyes just for a moment? And I want you to imagine right now the living God wrapping his arms of love around you right now. Contrary to our impulses, he's not wrapping his arms around you and saying, try better, do better, get up, what are you doing? No, he's just overwhelming you with love. And in that embrace, we find the capacity for our hearts to change. And if what we love changes, then how we live will change. Holy Spirit, would you meet us now? Meet us in the places that we love, the things we love. And would you help us to love what you love? Overwhelm us in your grace. Wrap your arms around us, Jesus. Transform us as only you can. The prayer team is in the back. In these next few moments, if you would like prayer, all we would invite you, all you would have to do is just slip out of your seat and go to the back. Uh, if any of the words that were shared earlier resonate, um, we'd love for you to receive prayer. If anything you're going through, anything at all that you need prayer for, this would be the opportunity to slip out of your seat and go and receive prayer. But I invite you, if you feel comfortable, could we raise our hands in the presence of God as we turn to him in song and confession, in prayer, and as he meets us now in his overwhelming love. Let's worship him together.